Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ranking of the Stars, a podcast in which I, Jack D'Lo Bobolik, and my lovely, luscious, lenticular wife, Hi, I'm Emily D'Lo Bobolik. Watch in chronological order every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture. And today's movie is... How Green Was My Valley. Alternate title, How Non-Existent Was My Plot. <laughs> or A Tale of Two Fathers. A Tale of Two Fathers. Mm-hmm. Mr. Griffith. Which, okay, I'm going to... My gonna, church yeah. dad. <laughs> I'm going to have a fun fact about Mr. Griffith because we both thought that, uh, yeah, it was Griffith, but it's actually uh, Gruffid. What? <laughs> Yeah. Gruffid? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no. No one in that entire movie says Gruffid. <laughs> but he is listed in the characters as Mr. Gruffid. It's spelled G-R-U-F-F-Y-D-D. They, there's a pronounced th at the, <laughs> at every time they say his name. It might be the way that Welsh people pronounce double D's. I don't know. Well... We watched this one on YouTube as well, so the closed captioning referred to him as Mr. Gruffy. Gruffy, yeah. Well, Gruffid, apparently. Gruffid. Baloney. I mean, there's plenty of characters in this movie that uh, their ass. names are a... Well, not weird, it's just that they're typically Welsh, but it's just they're not pronounced the way they're written. Yeah, the main character's dad is referred to as main character's dad or Dad Morgan. <laughs> dad Morgan. Because his right. actual name is what? Gwenwin or something? Gwillem? Uh, Gwillem. Gwillem. Yeah. Yeah. Nope, his name is Dad. Your dad. Dad Morgan. Yep, Dad Morgan. I think that sounds better than Gwillem Morgan. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> Easy to, easier to pronounce, too. That, too. All right. Let's look at the posters. Oh, <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? It's a bunch of heads. It's a bunch of heads. The so there are two posters. The one, the first one here on, that I have on the left on my screen is the theatrical release poster, and this one is just artwork that's been made for for the movie. And they're both heads. The first one looks like it looks like a can of corn. It does. Yeah, because the heads are all yellow, and then the text is all white and green. It looks like Jolly Green Giant. <laughs> Open this up, get some peas and corn. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Who's, uh, who's that goo? Oh, that's the mom. That's the mom, yeah. <laughs> I thought she had a mustache. Mm, I mean, it kind of does look like they give her, give her a mustache on that poster. From so, this yeah. angle. Orange and brown and then just green for the for the title. It looked like the Baron showed up. <laughs> <laughs> I like the second poster better, though. It has a little bit more colors... It's, I don't know. It this one looks like a almost like a Christmas version. It doesn't make me hungry though. It doesn't make you hungry for corn. Yeah, it is not part of a balanced meal. Yeah, the second poster has a little bit more colors: green, red, blue. These these four lines coming out on the side though make it have like an amateurish feel. Like this is a poster made for a school project to me. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. It says, rich is their humor, mm. deep are their passions, reckless are their lives, mighty is their story. I don't know about any of that. No, me neither. 
Maybe the deep are their passions. Sure. But the other ones, not not so much. Yeah, overall, it's underwhelming. I mean, the first one at least has the weirdness of looking like a can of vegetables. Right. That's something in this era of just heads posters. I'll take anything I can get. <laughs> Grasping at straws here. All right. Characters and actors? Let's do it. All right. We have a bunch of people, and sometimes they have names. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing correctly, but we'll go with it. The... The main character is uh, the little boy whose name is uh, Hugh Morgan. And he narrates it as an adult. Yes, narrates it as an adult. So the narrator is Irving Pitchell. We never see him. We never see him. We only well, hear we see, his voice. We see adult Hugh from the waist down in the very first minute of the film and then never again. Yeah, we mostly just hear his voice. And Hugh here is not spelled the usual like H-U-J-H. It's uh, H-U-W. Yep. We have Roddy uh, McDowell, who plays Hugh Morgan, the little boy. Then Donald Crisp, who plays Gwilym Morgan, Dad Morgan. Dad Morgan. Who was in another Best Picture we've already watched. Yep, Mutiny on the Bounty. We have a returning actor. Yeah, he was Burkitt in Mutiny on the Bounty. One of the sailors who was called out by Bly for being shitty. Yeah, for yeah. stealing, uh, stealing food and yeah, and being shitty. And then he gets whipped for. Uh, he's the one who throws the meat at the officer. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he gets whipped for that. We have Patrick Knowles who plays Ivor, or Ivor, not Ivor, right? Ivor I think they Morgan. say. I think they say Ivor. Ivor. He's one of the sons. We have Richard Fraser who plays Davy Morgan, another Morgan's son. James Monks, who plays Owen Morgan. I think they say his name once in the entire movie. I, yeah. I referred to all the brothers as just the brothers. The brothers, yeah, because there's a lot of them. Yep. Uh, there are two more. There's uh, John Lauder, who plays Ianto Morgan, yep. and Evan S. Evans, who <laughs> plays Gwilym Morgan Jr. Gwilym Morgan Jr. Yep, there's two Gwilyms. Yep. We also have Sarah Allgood, who plays uh, Dad Morgan's wife, Beth Morgan. The only one with a normal name. <laughs> Thank yes. you, Beth. We have Maureen O'Hara, who plays their only daughter, Ang Herod. Ang Herod. Ang Herod Morgan. <laughs> what Her a name. Her name is spelled A-N-G-H-A-R-A-D. Ang Herod. Ang Harrod. You, I think you thought when we were watching it that they were calling her Aunt. Yeah, I could not make heads or tails of yeah, it. Yeah, Aunt. He, he Herod said her name. Or I, was, something like that. I thought he said Aunt. And I was like, wait, isn't that a sister? I'm. What's going on? <laughs> Confused. We also have Anna Lee who plays Bronwyn, who's Igor's wife. Ivor. Ivor's, Ivor's wife. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Is married to Frankenstein. <laughs> Ivor's wife. Uh, Walter Pigeon plays. Mr. Gruffid, <laughs> who we thought was Mr. Griffith, the pastor of the village, and he's also uh, sort of a, a school tutor for Hugh. And his second dad. And his second dad, yes. We have uh, Barry Fitzgerald, who plays Sephartha. Yeah, another one I who. Think? He's the guy who dumps the beer yeah. into his hat. And, and he's, another a, one, he's a boxing manager. Another one, I think they say his name once yeah. at the very end. So I'm not sure if it's Sephartha or Sifartha. No idea. 
Uh, we have Riss Williams who plays Day Bando. Die Bando. Die Bando. Yeah. Okay. They say that one multiple times. Go fetch Die Bando. Die Bando. A box. He's a boxer. And then the last one I'm gonna mention is Morton Lowry who plays Mr. Jonas. He's the school teacher. Yep. Some information about the movie. So it is based on a 1939 novel of the same title, written by Richard. I had to look up the pronunciation for this one. Llewellyn. Llewellyn. Yeah. Four L's in it. Yep. Two two double L's, and the the first one is pronounced uh, almost as a as an L mixed with a, a Y. Llewellyn. Llewellyn. It is set in South Wales in the late Victorian era. The movie was directed by John Ford, produced by Daryl F. Zanuck. And, and distributed by 20th Century Fox. It was released on October 28th, 1941, and the running time is 118 minutes. The budget was just $800,000, but it made over $2 million at the box office. They ate it up. Yeah. Fun facts? Fun facts. Fun facts. There's not that many for this movie, so... It is a movie that time <laughs> forgot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, the author of the novel said that the summers he spent in Wales during his childhood were an inspiration for his work, and that he had spent a lot of time in Wales visiting his grandfather and other family members. However, after he died, people debunked that story, because although he was of Welsh descent, uh, Llewellyn was... Uh, English born and he spent very little time so in Wales. He wrote this nostalgia piece about a place he didn't even grow up in. Exactly. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Maybe from stories that other people in his family told him. I yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> the original director of the movie was supposed to be William Wyler, but he was replaced by John Ford. Um, Ford wanted to shoot the whole movie in Technicolor in Wales, but it was impossible because it was during World War II. Yep. So instead, they had to, uh, the studio had to build an 80 acre set in the Santa Monica Mountains in California to shoot the whole thing so that they would have, they could still shoot sort of on location but a and a build set in the mountains yeah this is going to be our last movie before america enters the war yeah here it comes brace yep. for impact and then the last well not the last piece of fun fact but one of the last ones is uh, the movie still has a 93 uh, approval rating on rotten tomatoes with critics such as uh, tim dirks writing that this is, I quote, one of John Ford's masterpieces of sentimental human drama. It does have very strong characterization. Yeah. I think they put all their chips in characters and there was nothing left for plot. And then uh, the last piece of fun fact that I have is it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. I think it was, it got, mm. hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> it had 11 nominations and it won five of them, I believe. And the best picture win was a little controversial at the time because it won over movies such as Citizen Kane, 
and uh, the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> so people were not exactly happy that this was the the movie that I won Best Picture yeah, over. This is not a better movie than <laughs> Citizen Kane. No. How in not, the w- that, not that Citizen Kane is exactly a great movie either, it's, but it's definitely better than this. It's really good. It's not the greatest movie ever made like it's hyped up to be. But well, just to give you an idea, the movies that were uh, nominated in that year for Best Picture, so we have How Green Was My Valley, obviously, Blossoms in the Dust, Citizen Kane, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, <laughs> Hold Back the Dawn, The Little Foxes, the Maltese Falcon, One Foot in Heaven, Sergeant Yorick, and Suspicion. What's the worst one on the list for you? I think One Foot in Heaven sounds dreadful. Yes. Yeah. One Foot in Heaven, definitely. I've, n- I've heard of the Maltese Falcon. I've never seen it, though. I've read the book. Yeah? Yep. How's the book? It's good. It's just a pulpy detective story. Yeah, you and I can watch outside of this, uh, outside of the ones we watch for the podcasts. And that's it. That's it? Yeah. Time for the plot? Time for the plot. Should we address the elephant in the room before we get to the plot? What is it? Which is that there's no valley in this movie. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess the the fact that they're in between mountains and that they're... They live on the hill, though. Yeah, they live the, on the hill. They have to go down from the cold mines. They talk about there being valleys and towns and other valleys, but, yeah, where they actually live, they're on the hill. Like, the houses are diagonal. Almost. Yeah. They're going up the slope, and then at the top of the slope is the coal mine where everyone works. Yeah. And the whole thing is just set in this town, so there might be a valley below them, but the camera is always pointing up towards the top of the hill. Right. So you never see any valley in this movie. And there's only, what, maybe two, three times that we see them actually going on the hill and flowers. And obviously this is a movie that's shot also that's in black and white. So the how green was my valley, we don't know because we never saw how green it actually was. We have the one scene where they're in the field of flowers and then you can see something in the distance that yeah. might be a valley, but you never get any sort of like wide you know slow arcing shots of the beauty of nature it's all the camera's always just at the the foot of the hill pointed up towards the coal mine yeah there's no valley in this movie called how green was my valley Mm. all right now that that's out of the way loud hymn being sung over opening credits there's a lot of hymns sung in this movie a lot of music you don't go i'd say more than 15 minutes in this movie without a, a him being sung very loudly and passionately and then a shot of a man from the waist down while he places a book on top of a pair of boots narration i am packing my belongings in the shawl my mother used to wear when she went to the market and i am going from my valley this time i shall never return i am leaving behind me my 50 years of memory and the camera moves away and out a nearby window as the narration continues Strange that the mind will forget so much of what only this moment has passed, and yet hold clear and bright the memory of what happened years ago, of men and women long since dead. Yet who shall say what is real and what is not? We get scenes of the destitute valley Mm -hmm. in modern times. Can I believe my friends all gone, when their voices are still a glory in my ears? No, and I will stand to say no and no again, for they remain a living truth within my mind. 
There is no fence nor hedge round time that is gone. You can go back and have what you like of it if you can remember. So I can close my eyes on my valley as it is today, and it is gone, and I see it as it was when I was a boy, and then we shift into the past, and we see Hugh as a boy walking hand in hand with his father. Yeah. Green it was, and possessed of the plenty of the earth. In all whales there was none so beautiful. Everything I learnt as a small boy came from my father, and I never found anything he ever told me to be wrong or worthless. The simple lessons he taught me are as sharp and clear in my mind as if I had heard them only yesterday. In those days, the black slag, the waste of the coal pits, had only begun to cover the side of our hill, not yet enough to mar the countryside nor blacken the beauty of our village. I can hear even now the voice of my sister Anne Hagrid, and then she appears and makes a spooky Halloween noise. She, we we, yeah. we had a Halloween direct, uh, decoration when I was a kid that made this exact noise that she makes. This, <laughs> so she made a spooky pumpkin noise. I didn't remember that that was the first thing that she does on screen. Yep. Hugh and his dad are walking over side of the hill and she appears at a, a wall. So there's a good, I'd say like 50 60 feet yeah between them. between them and she yeah she yodels at them and then uh, hugh yodels back coal miners were my father and all my brothers and proud of their trade and then we see a scene of a line of men approaching a window to receive pay they uh, they walk up to this little window and then he goes like two pounds seven and then hands them money and then the next person comes up and he goes oh three pounds five and then hands them yeah. their money for However much. They give sort of a what I would consider maybe like a, an old version of a time card, like a yeah. Win. They hand the man at the window something and they're given their money. Yeah, and this seemingly happens every day. Someone would strike up a song and the valley would ring with the sound of many voices. For singing is in my people as sight is in the eye. And then we see the the column of men marching down the diagonal slope from the mine and they're all mm. singing together. The narrator's father and brothers break off from the column as it passes by their home and pause before entering to throw their wages into the apron of their wife slash mother who sits on a stool outside the front door. They all just chuck their the money they just got into her apron as she holds it out. Yeah, she she's collecting their dues. They proceed to the backyard to wash off all the coal dust and the narrator tells us it was his sister's job to keep buckets of water coming. Uh, coal dust is the honorable badge of the coal miner, he says, and he envied it on his father and brothers. After the washing, they sit down to dinner, and the narrator, uh, Hugh Morgan as a boy, grabs a slice of bread from a pile, but slowly puts it back as his father and eldest brother scowl at him, because they haven't prayed yet. Yes. We're told that there was never any talking at the table, which is fine, because he'd never heard any talk that was better than good food. His mother was always the last to start her meal and the first to finish, for if his father was the head of the house, his mother was its heart. After the food was eaten and the dishes washed, the box was brought f for the spending money to be handed out. No one in the valley had ever seen a bank. They kept their savings on the mantelpiece. And Hugh is given spending money for seemingly the first time and runs immediately to Mrs. Tossel's shop, for the toffee, which you could chew for hours. So what happens is that they have this black box that's the, the family's savings, yep. I guess, and, and the dad gives them, uh, gives everybody 
some money that they can go and spend however they want. Yeah, they don't have individual money. They all just, that's why they're throwing the money in her apron when they came home. Because it's a collective effort for their family. All the money, it's just the family's money. And it goes into that box on the mantelpiece. Yeah. I really enjoyed that opening sequence. Just the description of the family and seeing them all come together around the dinner table. Like It reminded me dinners with like my entire family when i was a a kid and everybody would come uh yeah come together around the around the dinner table and just i don't know it it felt very authentic and heartwarming yes that is the the strong point of this movie is that the family feels like a real authentic family yeah and they have their their habits and there are things that they do together, and yeah, it yeah. it feels very real. It was it was very uh, reminiscent of just of how life is in Europe for families, as in like here in America we have we have family dinners, but they're a lot of the time happen more for like big occasions, like we just had Thanksgiving and then dinner and then uh, Christmas is coming and stuff like that. But for me as a kid, like family dinner, it was every night, like the whole family was sitting down together to have meals together. And it feels, it feels like they're all in it together. It's all a group effort. The fact that his father and brothers all work together and then the money just goes into a collective and then he has his job and his sister went to helping them bathe when they come back and set up the meals and all that. You know, yeah. They're all all working together. On his way back from buying toffee, he sees Bronwyn. Oh, I should say, the lady at the, the toffee shop had a pilgrim hat. Do you notice oh, that? Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, yeah. She, had, she had the big conical hats you see on pilgrims, just minus <laughs> the buckle. <laughs> and no one else in the entire movie has that hat. So, uh, On his way back from buying toffee, he sees Bronwyn who has come over from the next valley for her first call on Hugh's father and mother. He runs ahead to open the gate for her as she approaches the house and watches as she introduces herself to his mother. He's very taken by her. Like, he sees her and she's uh, she's tall and blonde and beautiful and yeah. he doesn't dare talking to her. He's just staring and then walking backwards and just, yeah, very... very enamored with her. Immediately smitten. Yeah. In narration... He tells us he thinks he fell in love with Bronwyn in that moment. Perhaps it is foolish to think a child could fall in love. Why? (laughs) Children are people. Children understand emotions. But he was that child, and nobody knows what he felt except him. You don't. You don't have to sell us on it. We know. (laughs) We know children are people. Yeah. Maybe they didn't know in the forties. Well, just because people. Whenever a child says, "No, I'm in love," we tend to think that it's not true because we as adults know what love feels like and how serious it is mm-hmm. but it feels like i think we tend to to think that uh, children can't uh, don't understand what love really is but i i've seen i've seen proof that a lot of children understand what love is they only have children they have pretend emotions they don't have grown-up emotions <laughs> bronwyn and his mother sit together in the living room making pleasant small talk as his father leads his brother Ivor in, uh, his father then bows and shoves Ivor towards Bronwyn, just right across the room. Yeah, go talk to her. She's a woman. 
The four other brothers then enter in a line and bow. Hugh's father gently lifts Hugh out of the chair he was sitting in and tells him to run along. What's happening isn't for him. That's another thing about this family dynamic. There's very rigid rules for everything. Yeah. Yeah, the the courting rituals and the, oh, this isn't for children, and we have to formally present the the fiance and then have all the sons come in and bow to her in an official greeting and there's also a big age gap or what seems like a big age gap between Hugh and his brothers because they're all grown men and he's a kid he's not older than 10 yeah he comes up to their waist on all of them yeah and they're all giants too so this might be a distortion also (laughs) of how we see them and how old they are although dad morgan's not that big all, yeah. all his sons tower over him, but he's still the head of the household. <laughs> He'll have his time later, he says to Hugh as he pushes him out. We then jump straight to Ivor and Bronwyn's wedding. Uh, Ivor and his father are standing in the aisle awaiting the bride, and Ivor nervously tries to put his hand in his pocket, which his father prevents with a slap. <laughs> he doesn't say anything. It's just, it's just like, yeah. the hand goes up and he just goes, whack! <laughs> just <laughs> smacks it away from the pocket. Don't put your hands in your pockets on no, your wedding day. doesn't say anything. No change in expression. No nothing. Just hand goes up and bam! Right back down. The crowd all break into a hymn simultaneously, causing Ivor to jump. And Bronwyn enters in her wedding dress, which some members of the crowd reach out it to touch as she passes by. Yeah, like that she, felt weird. Yeah, F- creeps. Don't. Yeah, hands off the merchandise. Look with your eyes, not with your hands. Yeah, if anybody had tried to like touch my dress on our wedding day, I would have been like, "What the heck do you think you're doing?" Yep. Just want to get a, a touch of the magic. Hugh's mother wails dramatically in the front pew, and we're informed that the couple is to be married by the new preacher, Mister Griffith who had come from the university at Cardiff. Uh, camera cuts back and forth from Mr. Griffith and Ankharid <laughs> several times, the latter of which is clearly smitten. They're just making googly eyes at each other. Their long, uh, flirtatious relationship begins. Yeah. That was also cute. Like, it, it was the way she was you know, looking at him and just very... She's... In admiration of him, and she, yeah, you can see it's love at first sight, but it, it felt very tame also at he, first. Well, Mr. Griffith is a very uh, handsome preacher. He's tall, he's oh, yeah. broad-shouldered, square-jawed. There, preachers come in several different varieties. <laughs> yeah, this it's, was definitely one of the hotter ones. Yeah, this 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 is young, learned, scholarly preacher. Yeah. You know, pillar of his community, respected by all, that kind. The thing that felt maybe a little awkward to me was that he definitely seems like he's already in his mid to late 30s, and Angharad looks like she's in her late teens. Mm, I think she looks like she could be like 18, 19, and he looks like he's probably maybe 36, 37. Probably pretty common back then. Yeah. Only raise eyebrows nowadays. After the ceremony, the steps leading down from the church are lined with men standing arm in arm, kicking and singing. We ha- we don't just it's not just the the main family that has their rituals it's th- this whole community has yeah the entire town has all these these oh it's a wedding so you do this and it's a funeral so you do this and they have their yeah they have their songs for a specific occasion yep uh, rice is thrown and the church bell rings the festivities move to the Morgans' home with more singing 
and the introduction of alcohol to the mix. This their house is absolutely stuffed with people. Yes. I wonder how like how the actors were just walking around with this cuz we see Angharad and the mom and the, the, the dad and all just like walking around to give people drinks and food and stuff but I have no idea how they were actually able to move. Hugh creeps down the stairs to watch wide-eyed at the huge mass of people. The wedding cake is then carried out by two men who seemingly stumble and fall, only to rise with the cake intact to a resounding cheer. (laughs) Outside in the backyard, a barrel of beer is opened, and a man fills his hat from the stream and takes a drink. He just fills up his entire bowler hat with beer and starts chugging it. I was surprised that the beer didn't start to come through the hat. Like, there must have been lining in the hat. Hats were much stronger in those days. (laughs) This is the the boxing manager. It was, I'll say that also, that no, because we know that this is a, a coal mining community, there are a few scenes in the, in the movie where, the Morgans have a lot of people at their house and there seems to be like food and drinks for everyone in abundance. And this is not what I expected from coal mining community for, for the time. Like it's, it almost seems like they're the family that has the, the most resources and the most money and that their, uh, their house is always open to the entire community whenever there's an occasion like that. Yeah, they are never depicted as being poor. Yeah. But I, they do say that uh, Dad Morgan has some sort of managerial role at the yes. mine, so he's probably getting paid more than everyone else and also has five sons also contributing their wages. Right. So yeah, they, they never seem to be uh, in bad financial straits. Yeah. In the living room, Hugh's mother is showing off her leggings to the assembled women while they give their loud approval. Until the front door opens and Mr. Griffith enters, and at that they go deathly silent, and Hugh's mother drops her skirts. They're like, oh shit, the pastor's here. Yeah, she's got her skirt up around her knee, and she's showing off her (laughs) leggings, and everybody's screaming and cheering, and And then the door opens, and they all just sit down, oh fuck, and (laughs) you could hear a pin drop. That there's a that's another thing. There's a separation between like there's definitely a room with the men and then a room with the women. There's yep. not not a whole lot of mixing in those two crowds. S- well, that would be improper, especially with this amount of alcohol flowing. Well, most of them are probably married. You, you anyway. can have your you can have your fun, but you have to have your fun the right way. The Lord is always watching. <laughs> well, the Lord can just watch it in his own house. In the dining room, Hugh's father is playing a drinking game to the cheers of the crowd, which also disappear when Mr. Griffith enters the room. It's, uh, they're doing the like line they make you walk when you know the drunk driving test or yeah. walking a straight line. Yeah. They're just doing that as a game though, yes. where, where you have to you have to get to the end of line and then bend down and like make a mark with chalk. Uh-huh. And then of course, when you bend down, you stumble and they, oh, you're drunk and you're doing the things drunk people do. It's hilarious. Into the silence walks the man who filled his hat with beer, singing loudly. He stops when he spots Griffith and puts the hat back on his head, spilling beer all over himself. (laughs) Uh, His song is picked up by the other people in the room, though, including Mr. Griffith, who makes a small duet with On Hogrid. Yeah, Mr. Griffith, they all shut up when he walks in, but he doesn't 
disapprove in any no. way whatsoever. They're just assuming that he wouldn't approve because he's a preacher. But he takes a mug of beer from a trade and, yeah. and drinks so it. He, he's here for the good times, too. Yeah, and then he starts singing. And they go, oh, he's a cool preacher. All right. Of course. He's probably also a, a younger preacher than what they're used to, maybe. that It's never said in a, uh, explicitly, but the image I, I feel that they have is like a, an older chastising preacher we never say we were told that he's new Mm -hmm. but never why there needed to be a replacement but going from the age of the deacons in the church you can assume that the previous preacher beefed it yes so he's a a replacement for a corpse we fade out from the festivities and onto a notice saying that starting august 3rd wages will be reduced one shilling at two pence for all labor in the mine and a shot of the huge crowd of miners reading the notice they even more people here than were in the morgan's house they are there is no room at all around the notice and they are the crowd is backed up even to the point of there's like a stairway behind them and the people are it's entirely taken up by people going up to the landing yeah that was a a stark contrast also to have those two scenes back to back we have the joyful celebration there's like i was saying plenty of beer plenty of food and then all of a sudden hey you're gonna get less money there's gonna be there's definitely gonna be less fun yep we've decided to pay you less hugh's father is there and tells his brothers to head home while he and some of the older men talk to the owner of the mine Upon returning home, he finds his sons waiting for him, like, right inside the door. They're all just, like, in a little semicircle. And they ask permission to speak. That's, like, how formal the authority structure is in this family. They have to ask permission to to speak. They are granted permission, and they tell him the reason for the cut in wages is because of the ironworks in a nearby town closing, causing an influx of men looking for work who are willing to do it for lower wages. This is only the beginning, they warn. A good worker will earn good wages, replies their father. Not while there are three men for every job, they respond. Did the owner actually speak to you, they ask? No. That is because they have power, and we have none. How will we get power, then? From a union of all the men. Union, is it? says their father, and is silent for a moment. Never thought I'd hear my own sons talking socialist nonsense. (laughs) Uh, the brothers try to argue, but Dad has had enough of this talk and tells them to wash up so they can eat. Yep. <laughs> Socialist nonsense, he says. Yeah. hundred years ago, same tactics being pulled. You want to be paid fairly? That means you're evil. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed this interaction uh, uh, between the sons and the, and the father. Especially, it continues afterwards at the dinner table. And that's also something that I have known my entire life. Like when I was a kid uh, in France with my parents, there was no discon- like no conversation topic that was off limits. So we would talk about everything. We'd talk about politics. We'd talk about religion. We'd talk about money. We'd talk about every- sex, anything. Everything was everything was open to discussion, and that was yeah, that was something that reminded me of uh, how I grew up. Yeah, they disagree with each other, but they always do it in a very matter-of-fact, cordial way. Yeah, as we shall see in the next conversation they have. Yeah, it's not a 
it's not necessarily that there's no emotions there, but they're they're going about that conversation in a respectful way. A respectful way, but yeah, it stems from the facts. Yep. They disagree, but they still love each other underneath it, so they never raise their voices or insult each other or anything yeah. like that. We get a quick scene of Hugh's father standing in the pouring rain as he counts mine carts full of coal being pushed out of the mine, and then we're at the Morgan's dinner table. One of the brothers stands up out of his chair and asks if he's supposed to watch his father stand like a dog in the rain and not raise his hand to stop it. Who gave you permission to speak, says his father. <laughs> this, not even addressing the argument, it's just the whole thing is invalid because the proper procedure was not followed. You did not ask for permission before you talked. Flag on the play. <laughs> Contents of word does not matter. Did you have a permit for this sentence? No, you did not. <laughs> Pack it up. This is too important for silence. It is not more important than good manners, is the reply. The brothers are told to shut the hell up about all this and eat their food in peace, but they push back with one saying that he will speak against injustice anywhere, with permission or without it. Not in this house, says Dad Morgan. In this house and outside, sir, says the brother, rising from his seat. He's told to leave the table and says he'll do one better and leave the house. And this is all very, all very cordial. It's... Not at this table. Yes, at this table. Well, then leave the table. Oh, I will leave the house. They don't even raise their voices. It's just, here's the line. I'm not going to respect the line. Yeah. These are the consequences. I accept the consequences. It's all. <laughs> yeah. And it just goes, it bounces from one person to the other. And it's just like one up every time. Yep. The other three bro brothers of working age rise in solidarity and say they'll all find lodgings together in the village. They head upstairs to pack, and their mother follows, leaving Hugh and his father alone at the table. The silence stretches until Hugh deliberately coughs, and his father, without looking up, says, Yes, my son, I know you are there. <laughs> I really like that. Because yeah. you can just feel the the actual uh, affection they have for each other. And at first, Hugh is like loudly like clanking his silverware against the plate and then that doesn't work and his dad is still just staring at the the table you know brooding over what just happened and then he he coughs on purpose and then he finally yeah i know you're there i know you haven't abandoned me hugh smiles and continues eating next scene opens with all the men coming down from the mine early the women stand in front of the house watching the men in confusion until ivor approaches bronwyn and tells her the men have struck Hugh is watching the column of men with Mr. Griffith and asks what it all means. Griffith responds that it means something has gone out of this valley that may never be replaced. Yeah, and I mean, because it's coming from the, the preacher also, it feels more like there's more mystical moment. Like it, it's almost like the, the soul of the valley has been taken out of it. We have incurred a spiritual wound from this. Yeah. Yeah, and all the you see the 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 pattern in the community that the men always all go up in a line, a, a great crowd to the mine together, and they yeah. they always come back down from the mine in, the, yeah. in this giant mass together. So, it's the the normal flow of things has been interrupted, and they're coming down way too early. So right. everyone immediately knows something is up. Then narration: twenty two weeks the men were out as the strike moved into winter. It was strange to go out into the street and find the men there in the daytime. It had a feeling of fright in it, and as always the mood of the men grew uglier, as empty bellies and desperation began to conquer reason. Any man who was not their friend became their enemy, 
They knew my father opposed the strike, and now it was they who opposed him. And then we see Hugh's father sitting in the living room as a rock smashes through the window, and he does not react at all. He's just sitting there in a chair. And just taking it. The, the rock smashes in through the window. He does not move. He does not say anything. <laughs> he is just more solid than the rock, even. Yeah. In the kitchen, Hugh's mother asks Hugh to take her to the meeting of the men that's happening in the hills tonight. Uh, Hugh informs her that it is no place for women. <laughs> but she... Yeah, I love that this like this little kid is like, this is no place for you, Mom. Yeah, this is no place for... <laughs> that, this is not for the ladies. Yep. Only men like me. Uh, but she insists. Shift to the meeting on a snow-covered hill as the cold wind blows. It's a very stark, top, like wind-blown, cold, like they're in the Arctic all of a sudden. Almost, yeah. Just pitch black night sky, snow is blowing, everyone's bundled up. Yeah. Hugh's mother stands above the crowd and speaks. I am Beth Morgan, as you damn well know. <laughs> I have come up here to tell you what I think of you all because you're talking against my husband. You're a lot of cowards to go against him. If harm comes to my husband, I'll find the men who did it, and it will kill them with my two hands. This I swear by God Almighty. I love this scene. I I think it was maybe overblown. It was an overblown reaction to to what happened. But she, uh, I love that she was standing up and she was defending uh, her husband and his honor. She is taking shit from no one. Beth gets up and says, "You're all about to take a flight on Knuckle Airlines, <laughs> fist class." Order in the next 10 minutes, and I'll throw in a second beating absolutely free. <laughs> I, she's a strong woman. That's another thing. Like, I really enjoyed her as a character because she, yeah, she's a, a, I love how Hugh describes her in the, introduc in, uh, the introductory uh, sequence when he says that she was the heart of the house. She definitely feels like that in that moment. You you see her, you know, going uh, about her days and um, taking care of the house and doing the food and all that, which was sort of expected in that time. But the fact that she was willing to get out of the house and stand up in front of all these men and defend herself, her family, and especially her husband... Yeah, uh, she was definitely embodying the being the heart of the house and the heart of the family. Yeah, she's very no-nonsense, but also very caring and, and kind underneath the, the, the tough exterior. Yeah. And not uh, afraid to show it either way. And she's the only one who can push back against Dad Morgan with no reprisal. There's uh, multiple times where he uh, complains about something or other, and her response is just, oh, go, go blow your nose or... <laughs> Go scratch off, boy, is one, one she says multiple times. All right, she tells them that she'll claw their eyeballs right out of their heads, uh, and with that, she grabs Hugh and sets off down the hill. Sometime later, as the men also make their way down, they hear Hugh calling for help, and after following his call, find him and his mother uh, having fallen through a sheet of ice into the freezing water. We don't see this happen. We just, all of a sudden, they're in the water. Yep. The men work together to pull them both out, and we fade to the Morgan's house where the local doctor has just come down from checking on Beth. And Hagrid tells him that Hugh was awake just now, and the doctor replies that he'll be fine then, but he doesn't know why. You're breeding horses here, Mr. Morgan, he tells Hugh's father. Mm. This, this doctor is very 
drunk, <laughs> it seems like. It feels a little bit like it, He's yeah. very loud and boisterous and uh, either has a mug of beer as he comes down or is handed one. He's handed one. By, by Dad Morgan and then yeah. just drains it in one gulp. He may, yeah, he definitely, he makes sure that he's drinking the whole thing before he's out the door. The doctor then leaves, but runs into Griffith at the front gate, who asks how he was doing. The doctor loudly replies that Hugh's legs were frozen to the bone, so it could be one or two years before he walks, if he ever walks again. At that point, Bronwyn comes out and tells him to mind his tongue. Hugh can hear him. Griffith enters the Morgan's house and goes to Hugh. And Hugh is on this... It's like a windowsill that's been turned into a bed. Yeah. It's like it's a bed that's like built into the wall. I've, I don't yeah. think I've ever seen anything like it before. I, it was lovely, though. Yeah, it's nice and comfortable little nook. It feels like, yeah, like it would be a great nook for reading or for, you know, as if... Like, I was thinking about that watching the movie. I was like, oh, this would be a great place. You know, in the winter months, if you, especially if you're in a place where it's snowing and you can just sit by the window and have your hot chocolate and read all afternoon and watch the, the snow falling down, that'd be great. Yep, got the window right next to him so he can watch the world go by as he waits for his legs to heal. So Mr. Griffith walks up to the window bed and asks Hugh, did you hear what the doctor said? Yes, sir. And you believed it? Yes, sir. You want to walk again, don't you? Yes, sir. It's a very... He's, it's very soft. It's very... He doesn't even, like, move his lips. It's so yeah. soft. It, it's almost, like, very softly, like, whistles it out. Yes, sir. <laughs> very downcast. You want to walk again? Yes, sir. Then you must have faith. You will see the first daffodil out on the mountain, won't you? Indeed I will, sir, says Hugh with a smile. Griffith gives Hugh a copy of Treasure Island and leaves, and Anne Hagrid follows him out so she can flirt a little more with him. I didn't necessarily appreciate the Jesus juice here. The you must have faith, and if you have faith, you'll walk again. Like this is not how science and this is not how bio biology works. There, yeah, there's a, a a few lines I left out about how uh, God has the power to suspend nature. Mm. And so uh, God has has performed miracles before, and so we'll perform uh, miracles again for you. And I'm going to throw my own flag on the play here, <laughs> because according to the Bible, the age of miracles is over. So bullshit, Mr. Griffith. <laughs> no, none of that. The Avengers do not have their superpowers anymore. Where does that say, where does the Bible I say that? I don't. Book, chapter, verse, somewhere in there. <laughs> I was never a book, chapter, and verse person. But you know that the miracles I, are I, It was a, a, a point that was reiterated uh, numerous times in my youth that the age of miracles was indeed over. Okay. And I remember them reading the passage. I just don't remember where the passage is. I will believe you. Uh, the narration then comes back to inform us that for the first few months, Hugh's mother was bedridden upstairs, but they could communicate through tapping. This was another really heartwarming scene because she's upstairs and he's... She's stuck upstairs and he's stuck downstairs, but they still uh, communicate with each other by just her knocking on the floor and him bashing against the ceiling with these long sticks that they yeah. have. So they just, yeah, Morse code communicate with each other. It is amazing. Like, it is great to see uh, a family like that, that they're so tightly knit together. Yeah, you can that... feel that they genuinely care about each other. Yeah. 
in a very real and heartwarming way. The seasons pass, and in the spring, Beth is finally helped down the stairs by her husband and Bronwyn. She's shaking and has one on each side of her to, to help her walk down the stairs. With shaky steps, she makes her way over to Hugh, and they reunite with a hug. And she has some white in her hair at this point, and she says it's because the ice got in her hair. And that's why she looks older. Oh Voices raised in song then come from outside, and Hugh's father goes outside to see his fellow workers coming down the road while singing. And he actually, like, wipes a tear out of Zai when he sees this. I think it's the only time in the whole movie where he displays uh, that much emotion. Yes. The crowd stops in front of the Morgan's house, uh, and Beth is brought out, and all the men take their hats off. This is like a, a, a communal apology to the family. The singing resumes, and the brothers that left to find lodging in town return and each give Beth a kiss as they enter the house. And uh, She is just a, a mess of emotion at this point. Yeah. And this is the, the first time that I have teared up in a movie we watched. I did not fully cry, but this scene got me a little bit. You have some tears right now in your eyes, too, while you're talking about it. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was a really touching scene. They do a really good job of making them feel like they really deeply care about each other and, and it also feels like the morgans are a pillar of their community like they're the their house is at the almost at the end of that slope that the man uh, yeah they seem to be in. towards the bottom yeah, they seem to be uh, towards the bottom so they're one of the last houses and it it really feels like they're very anchored in their community and that like you said there's multiple times in the in the whole movie when you could almost feel like the entire village is in their house and having drinks and and food and and singing and just enjoying being all together yep it's this really bittersweet sounding hymn they're singing to while they have this family reunion and you can tell how overwhelmed with emotion she is to to have all her sons back yeah a really good scene. Uh, the singing ends a second time, and Beth is prodded to say something, but can't find the words this time. And uh, Dad Morgan even makes a little joke about, "Oh, you had you had you didn't have any trouble the first time. You told them you were all going to murder them." <laughs> she wrings her hands for a few moments and finally settles on, "Come on and eat, everyone," and invites this crowd of like 60, 70 people in for an impromptu. Uh, food frenzy like yeah. you were saying they always seem to have gallons of uh, beer and uh, enough food to feed a multitude yep they can host a, a community-wide party at the drop of a hat mm. they're always ready to go inside as everyone eats hugh's eldest brother is approached by a deacon of the church who asks him why he hasn't been in chapel lately this guy looks like stephen hawking do you notice that yeah, yeah especially in, in the teeth area <laughs> uh, brother replies he's been too busy with the union lately and the deacon proclaims that unions are the work of the devil at least i'm not sitting in church talking rubbish says the brother uh, mr griffith overhears that and calmly asks what he means by rubbish because you make yourselves out to be shepherds of the flock and yet you allow your sheep to live in filth and poverty and if they try and raise their voices against it you calm them by telling them their suffering is the will of god yeah that's always something i was glad that he was standing up to you know the deacon and and people from the church uh, too because yeah that that's always something that's personally bothered me about 
about with uh, about religion and and the church and specifically is like yeah we're preaching to, you know taking care of each other taking care uh, of the community and all that and, and yeah, they never actually do it never actually doing yeah, it just empty words you remember the the beggars sitting outside of uh, saint peter's basilica yeah yeah that mountain of gold and marble and then there's people dying like 10 feet away yeah uh-huh yep <sighs> suffering makes you closer to god griffith says they should have their union because together they're strong but to remember that you cannot conquer injustice with more injustice and with great power comes great responsibility. And then Hugh is bitten by a radioactive spider. <laughs> the deacon then accuses Griffith of working outside his position in life and promises to inform the other deacons that he's preaching socialism. This deacon has a really theatrical way of speaking where he like really enunciates every words i'm going to tell them you are preaching socialism <laughs> and and no one else in the movie talks like that no. i wonder if it, it that was just the actor's way of doing things or if he was actually directed to speak that way if this was his way of talking and this was intentional, he must not have had a long career because it was very annoying. Yeah, very over the top and cartoonish and just stands out because nobody else is like that. The eldest brother who is talking then moves in to punch the deacon, but Hugh's father pushes him back, reminding him the deacon is a guest and tries to restore order by asking for a song to be played on the harp. His first attempt to restore order is to tell Beth to uh, get the deacon some beer, and uh, Beth just goes, uh, oh, I'll get a pan to hit him with. <laughs> and he turns to someone else and goes, oh, play a song on the, the harp, please. Oh, Jesus. Next, we see another scene of Mr. Griffith and, and Hagrid flirting. And then narration telling us that the strike was finally settled with the help of Hugh's father and Griffith. I think this is the scene of Griffith and Anhagrid in the, the kitchen where he mm -hmm. tells her that she would be a queen wherever she went. And then yeah. immediately, oh, I'm sorry for speaking out of turn. And then he uh, quickly walks out and she watches him go out the window and whispers to herself that uh, he can talk to, to her that way whenever he wants. Yeah. Oh, God, it's so improper. He's violating all the rules. The The proper way to do this, if you want to court a woman in these times, is the first time you meet, you stand four feet away from her. And then the next time you meet her, you stand three feet and 11 inches. And then the next time you stand three feet and 10 inches. <laughs> and eventually, when you're within a, a foot and a half, you ask for her father's permission. Well, actually, first you have to stand four feet away from her father. <laughs> or you're making him go backwards and backwards every time. The, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it's damn near that rigid and how formal and how, like, slowly you have to approach things with how they're doing, as we'll see in a later scene. Yeah. But also, he's the preacher of the community, so he... Well, even more so, he has to behave himself. I understand that, but, like, he doesn't have to be... I don't know. I don't, I don't know exactly how to phrase uh, what I want to say, but he's... She's part of his flock, so... Yeah, she, but you're not supposed to flock your flock. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, the men were happy to go up the hill that morning, but not all of them, for there were too many now for the jobs open, and some learned that there would never again be work for them in their own valley. We get the scene of the, the mass of workers going up the hill to the the mining factory but then there's this big gate on the entrance yeah and so the gate is closed while they're still streaming in so there's a, a big portion of the crowd that's just locked out because yeah. there's not enough work for everyone now 
Back at the house, one of the brothers complained to their father that it's the same all over Wales. There's no work and people are standing in lines to get bread from the government. But not him and one of the other brothers. They will have their share of the saving box and go, if you please, sir. Where will you go? asked Dad Morgan. America. After a moment of silence, Dad agrees as long as they don't tell their mother about it, but she comes around the corner and says it's too late. Yeah, she's heard the whole thing from the kitchen. She hugs the two who are leaving, and then they go listen to Dad read the Bible while Mom sits next to Hugh in the window, and Hugh tells her that he'll never leave at least. Mm. And then, yeah, the the Bible reading, it's Dad Morgan. He goes, shall we have a chapter, my sons? I like The way they talk is also really... I enjoyed it because no one has talked this way for like a hundred years. I know. It's very, they end a lot of sentence with, uh, is it? Oh, it's to be boxing, is it? Or, mm-hmm. oh, we're to be having this, is it? <laughs> that, yeah, that moment when Hugh tells his mom that at least he'll never leave her reminded me of our own son a couple months ago telling us that when he grows up, he's not going to have his own house, that he just wants to live with us forever. Yeah, that the the whole moving out thing is a, a modern contrivance of, yeah. of landlords wanting more rent money, really. Back in the day, yeah, you'd have three, four, even five-generation households. I mean, there are still plenty of, uh, of communities and countries around the world where it's still the case. Outside, a man in horse-drawn buggy pulls up, and when the Morgans come out, he presents them with a letter from Windsor Castle itself. Uh, Windsor Castle it is, he mm. says. A crowd gathers as the letter is read, and when it turns out, it's an invitation for Ivor and other members of the choir to sing before the queen, a cheer goes up. A celebration is in order, and Dad tells the two brothers that are leaving that they'll have a send-off worthy of the Morgans, which makes Beth sadly look at the ground. That night, four rows of men stand on the steps outside the church and sing God Save the Queen after a short prayer led by Dad Morgan. Hugh listens from his window bed and sees his brothers leaving out the back of the house. He calls after them, but they don't turn back. And every time we have the brothers leaving the house, it's always the same shot. It's them from the back with like their mm. stuff, whatever luggage they're carrying, just slung over their shoulder and then walking away in silhouettes. It happened when they left to find housing in the village, the four walked away in silhouette. And then when yeah. they came back with the crowd, it was the four of them walking back towards the camera in silhouette in the mm-hmm. same position. And now when these two are leaving again, it's the same thing. We get the shot of the two of them in silhouette walking away with their luggage over their shoulder. Yeah. Next scene is Mr. Griffith arriving to take Hugh to see the first daffodil like they promised. He carries him up a hill on his back, sets him down in a small patch of daffodils at the top, and then moves a few feet away and crouches down facing Hugh. You can do it, Hugh. You can walk, he says. Hugh looks uncertain and sways unstably on his feet. Oh yeah, but Mr. Griffith is very convinced, like, God has spoken. You can do it, Hugh. Hugh, walk, he yells. And with tentative, shaking steps, Hugh makes his way over to Mr. Griffith, who hugs and congratulates him. They, like, fall over into the flowers together because he, at the last step, you know, he loses his balance and falls. They sit next to each other under a tree, and Griffith tells Hugh he's lucky because he was given a trial to overcome by God. He implores Hugh to keep his spirit clean, and Hugh asks how. With prayer, dipshit. (laughs) (laughs) And by prayer, I mean good, clean, direct thinking. 
The first duty of his new legs is to get him to chapel on Sunday. Indeed they will, sir. And this this is the scene where we get the most valley-like shot. Yeah. Because it's another one of these like very claustrophobic nature scenes where they get to the top of the hill and there's a little patch of daffodils and then there's like true trees framing the shot so it, it feels very closed in but in the gap between the branches of the trees you can see in the distance that yeah. there's something that could be a valley it's not very clear yeah this is the most most nature we engage with i guess in the whole thing yeah this daffodil patch on top of the hill it's a shame that it wasn't black and white again like i wish they could have done it if they couldn't do, uh, do it in technicolor in wales because of, of world war Two, why didn't they do it in technicolor in their war free zone yeah, in california that yeah it altered where they could shoot but not how they could shoot so yeah i don't know why they didn't yeah, do it in color more expensive than black and white. I really liked this scene too. The how much of a, a mentor and an encourager Mr. Griffith has in actually following up on his promise and, and carrying him up the hill and encouraging him to walk and congratulating him. And in a lot of ways, he is like Hugh's second father. He's much more affectionate than his actual father is. Not that his actual father doesn't love him, he just has a much more uh, they have a different approach to raising the the kid and and to teaching him. It's a it's an implied love, yeah. you know, that you know is there. But with Mister Griffith, there's yeah more congratulations and a, a genuine interest and affection, and more he's more hands on. Yeah. And then yeah, him tell his the first duty of your new legs is to take you to chapel. And then I joke that uh, I would immediately break my legs again <laughs> if that were the case. <laughs> Back to church. Ah, shit. Hugh's new legs take us to chapel along with him in the next scene. And at the end of the service, Mr. Griffith tells everyone to stay in their seats because there's to be a meeting of the deacons. And the deacons are just these this line of crotchety old fucks who s sit in this special, like, pew in the center. Because yeah. all the other pews are, you know, off to the side like pews are. But the special deacon seat is at the front in the center. Uh, the same shitty deacon that accused Griffith of preaching socialism calls forward a woman we've never seen before and tells her her sin has been found out. She has brought a child into this world against the commandment. Prayer is wasted on her sort, and she should be cast into the outer darkness. Does she admit her sin? And while he's just digging into her like this, she walked up from a back pew and is just standing at the front, like white knuckle gripping one of the pews, like swaying and almost toppling over from mm. this tirade. She lowers her head and in a barely audible whisper, she says, yes, prepare for your punishment. Then says the deacon, but before any punishment can be given and Hagrid jumps up and yells for the woman to be left alone and calls the deacon hypocrites and storms out of the church. And then uh, when she jumps up, Dad Morgan jumps up, too, and tries to get her to sit down, but she doesn't listen. And yeah. Beth is flustered, too. Yeah, somebody should speak up for that woman. Like, that's a here. Uh, this is going to be a lot of me talking shit about the church. But um, I'm OK with that. <laughs> yes, I'm OK with that, too. People who are like deeply religious, we see that all the time. They're they claim to be pro-life and all that. But. What is the problem with somebody, if you're so, so pro-life and all babies have a right to live and all, and all that, like, why admonish a woman for bringing a baby, a, a life 
out of wedlock. Well, or because because it's out of wedlock. Well, that's not a good enough reason in my in my book. Organized religion is all about social control, and controlling when the babies get born is the ultimate form of social control. You're controlling the population. Yes, but that's in direct conflict with with the belief that uh, you know fetuses and human and babies are humans and, they, and that they have a right to be born. Life is sacred. Asterisk. There, <laughs> there is only certain forms of life. There is, there is always an asterisk at the end of every religious belief, yeah. and it is asterisk uh, parentheses under the right conditions, which are the conditions we say so. So. That, that's exactly the part that bothers me is the asterisk. Yep. These, yeah, I encountered plenty of people like these deacons in when I was uh, growing up in the church where they're just using religion as an excuse to have a club to beat people over the head with. And yeah. they're just getting their jollies by publicly shaming people. They just get off on it. And they can, you know, they can hide behind uh, God, but really they're, they're in it for themselves to, to feel this sense of power. Uh, Griffith follows Anne Hagrid out, and she angrily asks how he can watch such a thing happen. That was not the word of God. That was old men taking pleasure in causing pain. And she quotes the scripture and said, uh, Jesus saying, uh, sin no more and go on your way. The accused woman then comes running out of the church, and, and Hagrid runs after her. We move from there to Hugh's legs being massaged at he, as he lies on the living room table. Uh, the family is laughing and having fun until uh, dad shouts blasphemy, sacrilege, and hypocrisy. Can't a man smoke his pipe and read his paper on the Sabbath? <laughs> and that confused me because honoring the Sabbath, that's like an Old Testament thing. So I have no idea what denomination they're in. I have no clue with either. The, with, it's, never, it's never made explicit. Yeah. They are in the Jesus church where they like Jesus. <laughs> Go blow your nose, says Beth. <laughs> <laughs> she does not care about this and he's sitting with like his feet in a a, in bu a bucket bucket yeah. of hot water yeah his uh, pants are pulled up on, yeah. the, on his legs smoking his pipe and trying to, to read the paper but nobody will shut the hell up and let him concentrate then there's a knock on the door and it's none other than the mine owner himself this is the only time we see him in the whole movie and mr evans mr evans and he's the only person we ever see aside from mr griffith wearing a suit yes he's got a suit and cane and like a waxed mustache and you can tell he's of a higher social order than everyone else in the mining town he sits down in the living room and after some awkward rambling reveals that he is there on behalf of his son to ask if his son can speak to Dad Morgan about his daughter. This is the incredibly <laughs> formal courting process I was talking about. Father has to speak to Dad Morgan so son can have permission to talk to Dad Morgan about courting and Hagrid. Yeah. Uh, Dad Morgan says they are a proud family, but the mine owner's son has his permission to speak to him. The mine owner departs and his son immediately enters and says he's come to ask permission to speak to Anne Hagrid. And then he's also dressed in a suit and has a cane and wax mustache. And then he brings in, he doesn't bring in Anne Hagrid to meet him. He brings in his other sons yeah. to introduce themselves. They need to meet all the men in the family first. Yes, the, this is the men all having, uh, like making business deals about who's going to marry whom. Yeah. Outside, Mr. Griffith walks by and Anne Hagrid watches him from the second story window. Transition to Griffith's home late at night, where Anne Hagrid has come to find out what has changed between them. Why is she a stranger now? Mm. She doesn't want to marry the mine owner's son. She wants to marry him. 
Mr. Griffith wants her as well, but can't subject her or their potential children to the life of poverty that comes with being a preacher. Yeah, he tells her that he doesn't want to count on the generosity of others to put food in their, uh, you know, in their plates and or clothes on their backs. Yep. He would hate to do that to her, to see the white come to her hair 20 years early. She kisses him, and he doesn't react at all. He, like, he doesn't move his arms or anything, just like she's kissing a statue. Yeah. And Hagrid leaves in tears, and we transition to her wedding, where she looks like a joyless corpse. She just, even in black and white, you can tell she's pale and just looks like, she looks like a corpse. Like, she yeah. looks terrible. She looks sunken and sickly and... The dress she's wearing is way too tight on her, too. It's just, it's big and it's just very tight on her. Yeah, there's no joy. There's no glow. It's just, there's this hanging sense of gloom and defeat over the whole thing. Yeah. And it's, a, it's a loveless marriage. It was just a transaction. Yeah, there's even no singing when they come out like there was for Ivor and uh, Bronwyn's wedding. So yeah. Dad Morgan like walks up to the crowd and complains like, oh, there's not any singing for my daughter daughter's wedding, is it? Mm. And, and after he pokes them, then they start singing. But you can tell that they're not really into it because everybody knows. Yeah. After that, it's Griffith at the Morgans teaching Hugh and Dad Morgan math to prepare Hugh to be the first of the family to attend a national school. And then he's teaching them sums by talking about water draining out of a bathtub at different mm -hmm. rates. And uh, Beth is there in the background and she's just, oh, watch all this foolishness. Why would you fill up a bathtub that has holes in it? And Dad Morgan's, it's math, damn it. It's math. <laughs> We're trying to teach him math, and she just won't let it go. Foolishness, foolishness, I say. We then see Hugh arriving at said school, where he enters the classroom and gets bullied by the teacher instantly. The teacher says, uh, what a dirty little sweep it is, a little genius from the coal pits, and they expect me to make a scholar of it. You will address me as sir, or I'll put a stick about your back. Yeah, I'll put it. He's definitely the teacher. Definitely had a, a stick up his ass. Yeah, he's this young, twenty, thin, blonde. You know, has a very high opinion of himself. He's got. He always has his whacking stick in his yeah. hand, and arrogant, self-confident little prick. Yep. And Hugh showed up late because he had to walk to the next valley to go to school. Yeah. So as soon as he opens the door, like all the heads in the room turn towards him. And then he has to explain why his shoes are dirty to the teacher. And then the t teacher makes him sit on a stool in front of the class. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's the dunce seat or something they don't that, uh, when i was a kid something that they would do at school is like they would yeah they would put you on display and just keep asking you questions to see if you were gonna get them right or wrong and then if it, as soon as you got them wrong then you'd go in the corner you'd go and sit in a corner of the room yeah we don't get that though he just puts them on the stool and then continues the lesson kind of and then we immediately leave the scene yeah Things aren't any better with the other children because at recess, Hugh's pencil box is grabbed out of his hands and smashed against a post. Hugh attacks the bully that did it but doesn't know how to fight and is knocked out. Once Hugh gets back home, Dad Morgan sees that he's beaten up and sends his other sons to fetch Dibando. Mm -hmm. He asks Hugh if he's willing to go back to school. Uh, Hugh says yes, and Dad Morgan tells him that from now on, he'll get a penny for every mark on his face, a sixpence for a bloody nose, a shilling for a black eye, and two shillings for a broken nose. 
Beth is not on board with any of this and says if he keeps fighting, she won't speak to him anymore. She won't speak to Hugh. Yeah. Die Bando then enters the house and tells Hugh he's going to teach him how to fight. Bathtubs full of holes and now prize fighters, says Beth as she leaves the room in disgust. <laughs> Die Bando comes in and he starts like looking at Hugh's knuckles. And they say, yeah. oh, he's going to teach him how to box. And then Dibando says, well, I'm going to teach him how to fight first because there's plenty of people who claim to to know how to box who don't even know how to fight. Yeah. He's like, I love when he was like uh, examining his hands, he's like assessing what he can do with this child. Yes. Uh, the quality of the clay he's working with. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, Hugh is, is very... He's very slight. He's like a whip of a child. He's oh, yeah. pencil thin, yeah. short... Yeah, the the kind of kid that would get picked on and you would not ever think would be a fighter. I felt bad in that scene, like when he was fighting and being punched by the other kids, because like it it was very violent for a scene with kids. Honestly, like it it didn't feel yeah it didn't feel like something that was rehearsed and choreographed. It felt like he, he it actually looked like he was taking some actual punches. Yes, they said now fight children. Yeah, and then they filmed it for posterity. And the bully is like almost twice as tall as he is because this is a school where they're mixing ages and grades all in the same classroom. Yeah. So, yeah. And immediately, like, he just walks out the door and then the pencil case gets grabbed away from him and smashed. They do not waste any time at all. Just jump right on him. Vicious. We see the results of Hugh's training in the very next scene as he fights the bully who broke his pencil box uh, shirtless in the schoolyard. There's just a ring of children and him and the bully shirtless. And Hugh's like got his uh, dukes up like he's <laughs> yeah. a like he's a proper boxer now. And the, the bully's taking these wide swings and keeps missing. And uh, Hugh is circling more effectively and, and getting his licks in. Yeah. So the training has paid off. Hugh is winning, but the fight is interrupted by the teacher who blames Hugh. He comes and like grabs him by the arm and like, oh, you engaging in your favorite pastime, you miserable little scamp from the coal pits, right? And like he has a he has a, a chip against him because he's a because he's from the coal mining. Yeah, because he's from the coal mining area. The teacher tells the bully to make a back, but the bully refuses. So another boy steps up and Hugh is draped over his back while the teacher whips him with the stick. Make a back. And he just, which is a command to become a human table so mm-hmm. I can lean uh, uh, the other child over you and, and beat the child. It happens so often they just have a command for it. Yeah. A girl gives Hugh a rag to bite on, but he quickly passes out from the beating. She just crouches down near his face and just here bite on this rag while you're being beaten but then he passes out when he returns home his brothers see the cuts on his back and offer to beat up the teacher but hugh says no it's his fault for breaking the rules uh dibando hears the exchange and shows up at hugh's school the next day and punches the teacher anyway yeah he's teaching the he, he's there on the pretense of finding some new people to teach or training wanting to train boxers and just gives him a, a beating in front of the whole class yeah hugh stumbles home and like collapses right as he makes it and then his brothers go to see what's wrong and they they touch his back while they're picking him up and he whimpers from the pain and then they yeah. take his shirt off and they say oh you're cut to the bone and then offer to go beat up the teacher he says no and then yeah we have this scene with Dibando coming to the school 
and he just enters into the classroom and he like walks up the teacher and takes the stick away from him and says, oh, well, how do you measure the length of a stick? And then, oh, the teacher says, well, by its length, of course. And then the response is, well, how do you measure a man, especially a man who uses such a stick on a boy a third of his size? And then, yeah, they proceed to give him a demonstration of boxing, which is just Dibando punching the teacher a couple times, multiple times. And each time the teacher sends like careening into the wall and just sprawls on the floor and both times the camera looks at him while he's on the floor and he just looks like he's dead yeah like he, he is his legs are like splayed at unnatural angles and his like eyes are rolled up in the back of his head he looks like a corpse he, both yeah. times which was comical but also but also a little bit like jesus christ yeah Hugh told him not to do this and then very next scene they they show up and do it anyway well, he told his brothers not to do it. Yeah, I suppose you can escape by in a technicality. Next scene, the alarm is sounding from the mines, and everyone in town rushes to see what's going on with Mr. Griffith in the lead. The camera rides up the mine shaft with the elevator, because that's how they get down. They ride an elevator down into the mines. And the first man off tells Griffith that Ivor was crushed under a tram, and the next elevator up has Dad Morgan holding Ivor's body. Griffith goes down and informs Bronwyn, who collapses against the doorframe of their house and screams, Ivor! And the camera, the camera is far away from all this. So you see them go up and you see them come down and uh, Bronwyn, all the women are outside their houses because they know something's going on. And then you don't hear what Griffith says to to Bronwyn. You just see him walk up to her and then her being distressed and going back to the doorframe and then collapsing. Fade to everyone gathered in Ivor's home for his funeral and Beth comes down from upstairs to inform Dad Morgan that they have their first grandchild. One comes, one goes, he says. Tell that to the woman upstairs. She'll have an answer, replies Beth. Do not kindle the wrath, <laughs> says Dad. <laughs> yeah, but also he deserved it. Like the what's that's not a good saying, like what comes, one goes. Like, no, you don't you don't trade lives like this. Like the because no, you don't just trade lives. Yeah. When God when God closes uh when God closes a child, he opens a grandchild. <laughs> another another great old timey saying, do not kindle the wrath. And Beth replies, To hell with the wrath. Then we're in the Morgan's kitchen and Hugh is having his report card read by his parents while Bronwyn walks her new baby behind them. Or, yeah, rocks her new baby behind them. Hugh is doing well in school, so Beth gives him some buttermilk as a reward. But Hugh wants some of Bronwyn's cake as well. But Bronwyn cheerfully informs him she doesn't make cake anymore because her husband isn't around to eat it. The first time that she comes over to pay them a visit before she's even married to Ivor, she she brings shortcake. Yeah, some shortcake in a little uh, picnic basket. And then... She sadly moves over to the the open door and, like, leans against the door frame. Beth goes over to comfort her, and Bronwyn tells her that she still puts Ivor's clothes out and sh- clothes and shoes out every night, but they're still there in the morning. Uh, Dad Morgan asks Hugh what job he is going to pursue with his education, and Hugh says he wants to work in the mines like him. His father tries to dissuade him, but Hugh insists. His father tells him to blame himself if he regrets his decision later, gets up, puts his hat on, and says he's going to get drunk. That's the only only time, aside from the, the wedding in the beginning, where he, like, indulges in any vice. Because yeah. the whole reason they're sending Q to school is so he can escape this life in the mines, and yeah. then 
Hugh doesn't want to escape it. They're before he asked for the cake. They're talking about, oh, are you going to be a doctor or a lawyer? Mm-hmm. Oh, it would be such a an honor to have a, a, a doctor or a lawyer in the family. You could have nice clothes and even a horse to ride around on. Hugh is not sold on the idea. I think he's also he's also just very he's still a kid really and he's very much attached to this family dynamic like more than any of the other children that and then we see whether it's uh and Herod or the other boys like he is very much he's the last one he's the baby of the family and i think he's much more in a cocoon than the other kids have been so far so there's more maybe more sentimental attachment to the house and to the family for him than for the other ones yeah what he's saying here is he doesn't want things to change yeah really and you can feel the the sorrow i guess of his father because it's impossible it's impossible for a child to have the same perspective of a job as a a man in his 50s and he's he's trying to save his son from this terrible life he's led in the coal mines and his son is intentionally going down into them yeah. and it depresses him to the point where he goes and drinks. Well, it's also that they have probably had to, it's not expressed that way, but they've probably had to make some sacrifice, financial sacrifices, especially for, to send him to school and get him to have some you know, material and you know, get the preacher to be his tutor and, and teach him and, and all that. So there's been a bunch of, efforts from the family already to give him a better life and he's throwing it away yep he was supposed to be the one that escaped yeah dad morgan is is much more trying to push this than beth because dad morgan says something lines of oh you should have a respectable job and then beth over here saying goes and oh what are you a bunch of jailbirds then mining is a respectable job if if hugh turns out to be as good a man as uh my husband and sons then it everything will be fine She's not nearly as upset as Dad Morgan is because she doesn't work at the mines. Yes. And also she sees most of the, as a, a stay-at-home mom and wife, she sees the, the fruit of that work coming to her. But not that, I don't want it to be misinterpreted here because being a stay-at-home mom is a full-time job as well. But she sees the... Yeah, the, the the money coming in, she but she doesn't have to do the like mining job to how to get the money. It's not a full time job where a mine can collapse on your head. Yes. Uh, then a short scene of Hugh asking Bronwyn if he can live with her, and then a montage of Hugh's first day in the mines, which ends with his two oldest brothers being discharged after getting their day's wages. The scene with him asking to live with Bronwyn, he shows up to her and Ivor's house in a, in a suit yeah. and then sits down and like formally like well if you're setting out clothes and shoes any night uh, anyway let them be my clothes and shoes Bronwyn and his voice cracks when she accepts good uh, good yeah he tries to <laughs> he's trying to pretend to, to be a, a grown up yeah trying to be the, the man of the house I will be the man of the house now very silly and awkward but she accepts I did yeah. not expect her to accept so Hugh's plot to steal his dead brother's wife begins. <laughs> Even though he's probably, what, 15 years younger than her? Yeah, that's one of the things about this movie is long amounts of time are supposed to be passing, but Hugh never looks any older. Yeah, He is eternally uh, between 11 and 12 years old. 
And then his first day in the mines, we see he's immediately just covered in soot, just all over. And we see him pushing a mine cart while like water drips yeah. all around him. And then him like holding a piece of rebar where in that's stuck into a wall while a, a grown man like hammers into it. 10 and 11 year olds working down in the mines. And then, yeah, his brothers are discharged after they get their wages. They're at that window where they hand out the money, and then they give him the amount of money, and then discharge. They just say discharged and hand him a piece of paper. And, and that's it. No explanation. The narration comes on afterwards and says that they were the two highest earning workers in the mine, so they were fired because there was cheaper labor available. Yeah. They were making too much money. They were working too well. Back at the house, the brothers hug Beth and request their father read aloud from the Bible, and then they leave the valley. Yep. They, yeah. Shall we have a chapter? Yes, my sons. And then he sits down and reads, and the passage he reads ends with, My cup runneth over, which is ironic because the family is splintering more at this point. Mm. And then we get uh, the same silhouette of them, you know, walking away with their stuff. And those are the last two brothers. So now it's yes. just, it's just Hugh and his parents and and Aunt Herod. And Har and Herod is uh, married. Oh yeah, she's married. Married now. at this point, and she's she's uh, left the valley. She's in Cape Town, I believe. Yes. Uh, yeah. After that, the narration informs us that uh, Anne Hagrid returned from Cape Town without her husband and did not go to her family, but stayed in the mansion on top of the hill. We see Hugh entering the mansion and meeting Anne Hagrid who sits down on the couch next to her and asks for news of all the people she used to know. Hugh gives her the updates on everyone in the town, commenting on Mr. Griffith last. He says Mr. Griffith is still the first to rise and the last to bed. She asks how Griffith is doing, and Hugh says he's not as he was. He's ill in his eyes and his voice, like you. Uh, yeah, Hugh is a very perceptive. Just calls her immediately out on the fact that he can tell that she's he not knows, happy either yeah. she gets up and asks him to leave but the servants return at that moment with tea and then Hagrid changes her mind and lets Hugh stay she pours the tea apologizes for being rude and then breaks down and launches herself at Hugh crying that she tried to tell their mother but before she can tell us what uh, she tried to tell their mother about we transition to the annual gathering of the league of gossip and pearl clutching <laughs> it is uh, down in what looks like the cellar or basement of this house yeah the basement kitchen from the from the house i guess and it is just like every gossipy busybody old woman we have seen in these movies just copy pasted like 20 or 30 times because yeah. the the cellar is just stuffed with them they're all wearing black they've all mm -hmm. got the same hat they've all got the same burning desire to look down their nose at people uh, the head of this procession is the the elderly maid who served them their tea who uh, has served the family for 37 years. Yep. Primo gossip being revealed is that Ann Hagrid is trying to get a divorce, and she she is a master at the craft of gossip because she hymns and haws and being like, oh, it's not my place to say, and oh, I, uh, you didn't hear this from me, and oh, I shouldn't say. And, and it whispered it to someone who then, they're playing, what is it called? What's that game called? Telephone? Yeah, telephone. Where they just whisper it one to the other. Yeah, and she knows exactly what she's doing. She's just building the tension of yeah. the moment. And 
she's been doing this for decades. She's a master of this. And then the last one who hears it says, divorce. Divorce. So that she doesn't have to say it herself. And then they all clutch their pearls uh, exactly how they wanted to. Mm -hmm. This is just, this is like a a henpecking convention. This, this gathering of witches who just want to gossip and, and, and cackle and go, oh, I can't believe it. How scandalous. Which is, you know, another thing to go about and shit on religion because I know divorce goes against religion, but isn't it worse to live in a loveless marriage than to be... uh, Is it... Yeah. How is it better to be in a loveless marriage but not get divorced than to get divorced and actually find somebody you can spend a happy life with? Because suffering puts you closer to God. Then uh, I have a four-letter word for God, starting with F and ending with K. Uh, then we get a another quick trip to the mines where we see Hugh get into a fight with some other boys who are talking shit about his sister because there's a bunch of 10 and 11-year-olds down in this mine. Yeah. Why wouldn't there be? And then we're back at the house, and the narrator says it was the first time the Morgan's door was closed in the daytime. Because this, the gossip has spread throughout the town at this point. We see Hugh walking home from the mine, and there's a, a gaggle of uh, busybodies who uh, giggle and point as he walks by. Hugh's parents sit in the kitchen looking glum, and Beth asks her husband if he's going to chapel. He isn't, and if they do this thing, he'll never set foot in it again as long as he lives. Hugh asks Beth what the chapel business is and is told the deacon will be having a meeting after service about N. Hagrid. Hugh volunteers to go and see what happens at the meeting. At the church, Mr. Griffith stands atop the pulpit and says it is the last time he will speak in this chapel. He is leaving the valley with regret towards the people who have helped him and let him help them. But for the rest of them, Those that have only proved that he has wasted his time among them, he has only this to say. There is not one among you who has had the courage to come to him and accuse him of wrongdoing. Yet if there is anyone who should be branded a sinner, it should be him. Will anyone raise their voice now and accuse him? And there's silence. Deafening silence. Cowards. No. They're cowards, too, as well as hypocrites, he says that. But he doesn't blame them. The fault is his as much as theirs. The idle tongues, the poverty of mind they have shown. And when he says that, the camera points at the the gossipy old maid who's sitting in the front, and she looks down in embarrassment. Means that he has failed to reach most of them with the lessons he was given to teach. He then walks to Hugh, who's sitting in the very back row, and puts his hand on Hugh's shoulder, and Hugh looks at him with tears in his eyes. Hugh, when I was a young man, I thought I would conquer the world with truth. Thought I would lead an army greater than Alexander ever dreamed of, not to conquer nations, but to liberate mankind, with truth and the golden sound of the word, but only a few of you heard, only a few of you understood." The rest of you put on black and sat in chapel. Why do you come here? Why do you dress your hypocrisy in black and parade before your God on Sunday? For love? No. For you've shown that your hearts are too withered to receive the love of your divine Father. 
I know why you've come. I've seen it in your faces, Sunday after Sunday, as I've stood here before you. Fear has brought you here. Horrible, superstitious fear. Fear of divine retribution, the vengeance of the Lord, and the justice of God. But you have forgotten the love of Jesus. You disregard his sacrifice. Death, fear, flames, horror, and black clothes. Hold your meeting then. But know if you do this in the name of God and in the house of God, you blaspheme against him and his word. The last line delivered as he walks out the door and Hugh gets up and follows. This was a great speech. Yeah, it was this, amazing. This was the kind of hellfire and brimstone and uh, how dare you, you pieces of shit that I wanted from uh, All Quiet on the Western Front yeah. when Paul came back. He is... Griffith just holds nothing back and just, you bunch of lousy hypocrites, why do you even come here? You just come here to shit on people, and I I see it, and I'm calling you out on it, and I will have no part in this, and you are blaspheming and just drops the mic and just walks out. I loved when he talked about the poverty of mind because... I know there are plenty of people who are smart, intelligent, and, and all that, and are religious people, but I find <laughs> that oftentimes believing in something of a, a higher power diminishes your own understanding of the world and your own capability to think for yourself. Fear is the mind killer, and yeah. fear is a big part of organized religion. Yeah. He's right about all that. They, they are not coming there to celebrate uh, love. They are coming there to quiver in fear and like point fingers and accusations at each other. And yeah. he wants no part of it. And and they should be ashamed of themselves. And it, yeah, that was a best speech. I like that even better than uh, Emil Zola's final speech. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is the best speech we have seen so far in any movie. <laughs> Maybe we should have a, uh, add that as a category in the next retro uh, retrospective. There might not be enough to have it every year, but it should definitely at least be a category in the final yeah. like overall list. Yeah. Yeah, this, this was great. And him walking up to Hugh and, and listening to him and... And showing, yeah, the fact that he was walking up to Hugh and talking to him directly also just felt, it felt like a private moment, but also a private moment in which he was still talking to the uh, to the rest of the crowd and trying to give them a lesson and shaming them on, on top of everything. He, the entire congregation turns around to look at him when he has his hand on Hugh's shoulder and then he turns back and uh, when he starts talking about fear and then he shouts it as he turns around, he's like, fear! And then they all, they all bolt and like sit back to look forward trying to pretend that they weren't looking at him. Yeah. It's great. Not just a put down, but a very eloquent, uh, pointed takedown and then the fact that he just walks out as he delivers the last line he's not even going to stick around for the farce it's great and then hugh gets up and leaves with him and then the the shitty uh stephen hawking deacon tries to stop hugh and say we're having a meeting but then like i don't care about your meeting yeah and leave and hugh just walks out with him afterwards hugh visits mr griffith at his house and griffith gives him his watch as a parting gift Hugh asks him to visit Unhagrid before he leaves, but Griffith declines, saying he wouldn't have the strength to leave her if he did. Their talk is interrupted by the alarm from the mine going off again, just like when Ivar was crushed, 
and they both leave to investigate along with everyone else in town. It's like a, a flood, like everyone's running towards the mine. Yeah. There are murmurs of a cave-in as the crowd surges forward and explosions rock the hill as great plumes of fire shoot up the elevator shaft. Yeah, something has gone really wrong. Griffith and Hugh push their way through the mass of people and make it to the shaft. Uh, they're trying, uh, the workers at the gate are like trying to keep people out, but Hugh and Griffith push through and then Griffith tells the people who are blocking the gate to let those with family members in the mine yes. through. So yeah. then the crowd starts trickling in. Like mostly wives coming in. They make it to the elevator shaft where they're told that Dad Morgan hasn't come up yet and was on the lower levels when the cave-in happened. They watch the elevator come up with a load of charred, coughing men that doesn't include Hugh's father. The elevator goes back down, but the next time it returns, it's empty. There's just a single pickaxe lying on mm -hmm. it. Beth and Hagrid and Bronwyn are all in the crowd at this point, and after locking eyes with Unhagrid, Griffith asks who will go down with him to rescue Dad Morgan. Dibando, Hugh, and several others step onto the elevator with Griffin and slowly descend into the mine. Uh, Dibando is blind at this point? I'm guessing too many concussions from fighting? Yeah, the, the guy who put the beer in his hat yeah. is standing next to him and yeah makes a comment about how he's blind. The guy who had the beer in the hat uh, is a coward, so he won't go down in the mine, but he will hold Dibando's coat for him while <laughs> Dibando goes down into the mine while he's blind. So uh, they slowly descend into the, into the mine together, and they find it both collapsed and flooded. The, the tunnels have completely collapsed. Everything is, like, at odd angles, and there's just water flooded everywhere. It's a mess. After several minutes of wading through waist-deep water and squeezing through narrow cracks, they're just trudging through the water and yelling for his dad like dad da. and it, it echoes through the mine because there's no yeah. one else down there at that point squeezing through narrow cracks hugh finds his father trapped under a giant slab of collapsed rock it's like just the upper portion of his body and he's wedged in between some rocks he calls for griffith and hugs his dad and we transition to a close-up of beth's face who says he came to me just now ivor was with him he spoke to me and told me of the glory he had seen. The elevator then rises, showing Hugh sitting in one corner, holding his father's body with Griffith beside him. The narrator says that men like his father cannot die. They are with him still, real in memory as they were in flesh, loving and beloved forever. How green was my valley then? Montage of scenes from the beginning of the movie when the family was still together, like them sitting around the dining table, and the first time we see Aunt Hagrid, and the first time we see Mr. Griffith, and then Hugh walking hand in hand with his dad, then we fade to black, the end. Which, a, a bit of a surprise that it ended there, because I really liked this movie, but I also spent the entire time waiting for the plot to begin. Yeah, it felt... I think my first reaction when after we watched the movie was like, what was this movie about really? Because it didn't have, it didn't have a, a plot really with, there were multiple things going on with the mines and, uh, and things with the, the family, but there was no overall like arching plot thing. Uh, there was nothing to battle against there was no resolution to any of this at the end yeah there's so. no there's no climax there's yeah. no rising action there's none of the the usual story structure stuff you just have all these little instances of things happening yeah 
but they don't even necessarily ever get resolved. Like the stuff between in Hagrid and Griffith and the whole stuff about Hugh going to school and, and all the stuff about labor and being paid a fair wage. Yeah. And which in itself, like if, if this is meant to be, you know, biographical or just true to life, like, yeah, the, in that sense, the movie is, is true to life. Like not everybody's life has, uh, you know, a, a main struggle that it, that you have to overcome, and it, it doesn't always have a, a through line and, and a resolution like that to to issues. So it's yeah, it's authentic in that way. But it's as when you're looking at a movie, when you're watching a movie, when you're watching a play, when you're watching any type of art that has archetypes, I guess, built in it you're looking for those uh, essential moments you're looking for those markers in in a well, story you're just looking like what to focus on and yeah yeah i didn't necessarily know what to focus on for this one yeah you just get all these seemingly unconnected things and i wasn't frustrated though by it like i was with cimarron because cimarron mm. was similar in, in just being a bunch of unconnected instances of things happening yeah over a period of time but that one was much more all over the road and just getting the feeling of what in the world is going on where this one at least it's it's all contained within this community mm-hmm. and yeah it's just it's a portrait of their family life and a portrait of the community at large and there's yeah there's no there's no central thing to deal with it's just all it's just all little episodes in their life yeah i was at least disappointed that we didn't get like you said a a resolution for mr griffith and and hyde yeah i kept expecting there to be a time skip and for hugh to be older especially since we start the movie with him being what in his 50s and yeah 50 years of memory and leaving the valley finally and it was implying in that opening that there would be a, a decline into disrepair for that community. So I was expecting that to be the the overarching thing, yeah. the, 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 especially with all that work stuff about not being paid a fair wage and there not being enough work for everyone in the valley. I was expecting the, the twenty two week strike that should have end, <laughs> ended everybody's financial situation. Yeah, I was expecting this to be about the slow decline of that community into ruin, but yeah. we don't we don't get that it's it's partly a portrait it's partly a coming of age story for hugh Mm -hmm. because it's his growing up by like going to school and then working the mine and like what more coming of age action is there than literally like carrying your father's corpse up out of a mine yeah it's a an era specific also a movie it's a community specific movie a portrait yeah, it's just it's yeah, it's just a window into a, a very unique moment in time. Yeah. And so I I don't I don't have any negative feelings towards it for not having a plot. I it was more uh confusion and surprise than anything else when it ended. It was like, "Oh, that that's it?" I thought, "Okay, I thought there was going to be it always felt like we were on the verge of like something more happening in there being, mm. you know, a a wider drama or some central drama and we just never get there and then it ends and the the closest thing we have to a climax is that speech in the in the church which is amazing but you also don't get to see what the fallout from that is because yeah the the mind collapse happens immediately afterwards his dad dies and then the movie ends so we don't see what happens with griffith and the church or 
how the family supports itself now that everyone is dead. I mean, obviously, Hugh stays in the valley because he was still there when he was 50. Right. But, yeah, it just it feels like the story never really started. And there and never nothing ever really got resolved. I I, I wish it had because they all all the character stuff was was great. They were well written. They were really authentic. It was I enjoyed I all their you. interactions and and the funny unique way they talked and their uh, rigid but loving family life and yeah they were it was a nice nice place to just exist for a while. Yeah, I completely agree with that with everything you've said. It's. Like I, I was telling you earlier, it's a hard one for me to think about and for and especially to think about where to place it on the list because like you, I enjoyed it while we were watching it. I'm disappointed with the ending because there's no resolution to any to anything, but I think it's one of the best depiction of genuine family that i've ever seen on film yeah like it's really hard to do that and not come off as like overly cloying and, and sweet and corny or trying too much yes yeah or it's there's so many movies where people are they're movie nice to each other mm. you know they behave in a way that you know oh this is pleasant to watch but it's not how actual people interact with each other yeah with but, the good little banter between dad morgan and his wife yeah his wife always would be like oh shut the hell blow your nose when <laughs> he gets on his tear about religious nonsense and uh, hugh and his mom communicating through the the tapping on the ceilings and yeah. how uh, genuine it didn't, it didn't feel forced no it, didn't, it felt like this could actually be the way that people communicate and, and love each other in a family. Yeah, it's that people in movies always show affection for each other in the same ways, whereas this family, they showed affection in their own idiosyncratic ways. Yeah. Their own unique, you know. Yeah. That being said, I don't know how much I'm going to remember of this movie. Like, it, there was... It was sweet and all, but I don't know that it's going to make a, a very lasting impression. Like in tw even in like 10, 20, 30 movies, I don't know how much I'm going to remember of this movie. Mm -hmm. Get our list. Sure. I need to see <laughs> what your list looks like. Yeah, before I, before I can place it. Have you placed it on yours? No, I was I had so I had a place where I put it earlier but i think i've i've erased it from my i think so right now my list looks like one is wings two all quiet on western front three cavalcade four the great zigfeld five rebecca six the life of emil zola seven it uh, happened one night eight you can't take it with you Nine Mutiny on the Bounty, ten The Broadway Melody, eleven Grand Hotel, twelve Cimarron, and and thirteen Gone with the Wind. I had placed it tentatively earlier between Rebecca and the Life of Emil Zola, but now you're reconsidering. Yeah, this is a better movie than Cavalcade. This the, the, it, the, true. The family in this is so much more of a family than the family in Cavalcade. Well, the family in Cavalcade also has just two little children. They're, and they're not very 
they would have been they're they, not very active members of the family i guess you're saying they would have been say? more of more of a family if they literally had more of a family <laughs> they just needed more children that too yes because both of their kids end up dying so yeah 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 i i agree that it's a better movie than cavalcade but you're going to remember cavalcade longer because of the titanic scene and the the washing machine montage and I'll, I'll, I'll let you look at your list first, and then I'll try to make up my mind. All right. Well, like I said, this is a better movie than Cavalcade, and Cavalcade is number three on my list. So uh, the question here is, is it a better movie than Rebecca? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca at least has a solid plot. Uh, it has a plot. And it's, a resolution at the end. It's much more... Uh, impressive as a piece of art because of the the visual just the level of visual mastery displayed in it yeah whereas this one it's just scenes of the inside of her house and like i said we never even see the valley we never even see the titular valley which is such a massive oversight we never see rebecca which is the titular yeah, character but, but that's intentional <laughs> see her on the poster maybe the valley's on the poster too yeah, this will go above Cavalcade, so this will be my new number three, and my list will be number one, Grand Hotel, number two, Rebecca, number three, How Green Was My Valley, number four, Cavalcade, number five, Wings, number six, Mutiny on the Bounty, seven, Life of Emile Zola, eight, The Great Zegfield, nine, All Quiet on the Western Front, ten, It Happened One Night, eleven, You Can't Take It With You, and then ninety, Broadway Melody, ninety-one, Cimarron, ninety-two, Gone with the Wind. Good, good couple, I, couple of movies. Rebecca at number two, and now How Green Is My Valley number three. Yeah, I think I'm gonna go back to where I put it. Yeah, between Rebecca and The Life of Emile Zola. So your new. So that would be my new number six. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Like really, like I said, just really enjoyed the movie. Just not sure that it's going to make a, a lasting impression i'll have to maybe reevaluate in, in a couple of weeks and see where where we're at but yeah. yeah i think i'm i'm more into to period pieces and just these things where you just like soak in a, a setting for a while mm. i'm not yeah as bothered by there not being plot i like i'm okay with stories that are just time capsules where you get to look in on this into a, an era that doesn't exist anymore and get to see a, a community structure that doesn't exist and hear people talk in a way they don't talk anymore. And right. That's enough yeah. of a novelty for me. Yeah. Whereas I, I enjoy structure a lot more. Yeah. That's why we have different lists. They didn't fight an evil wizard at the end. Not a real movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we have different lists. Anything else about this movie? I think that's it. What's yeah. our next one? The next one is called Mrs. Miniver. Oh boy, what the hell is that about? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to see when we watch it. I haven't I haven't looked for any information about this one yet. Well, so 40s have been really strong so far, so here's hoping that the trend continues. And yeah. the movie after that is Casablanca, so yes. even if Mrs. Miniver Mrs. Miniver is bad, at least we know we have Casablanca <laughs> coming up to, <laughs> yeah. to wash the taste out of our mouths. Yes. But hopefully not. Uh, we will see. We'll see that with you next week. Yeah. Well, until then, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.
Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.